The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking who broke Britain, we'll be discussing Burning Man, and we'll be debating the hypocrisy of pet owners. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine, The Spectator's economics editor, Kate Andrews, writes that political short-termism has broken Britain. Kate joins us now alongside Giles Wilkes, former Number 10 advisor and senior fellow at the Institute for Government. Kate, in your piece this week, you talk about Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, being caught out in a hot mic situation when she was being interviewed about the school concrete crisis. For those that need reminding, here's the clip. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their arse and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that, no? Kate, what did you make of her response and, and did she need to apologise? Well, look, I think she needed to apologize from an optics perspective, but I think the bigger problem in what she said wasn't wasn't so much criticizing others. It was in her insisting that she herself was doing a great job. If you have the privilege of being in a leadership position in government and if things are going wrong, uh, you take the heat, you take the responsibility, you don't insist that people pat you on the back. Where I think she had more of a point is is the bit that she actually apologized for, which is when she, I'm not going to use the language, our, our listeners have just heard it, but when she basically accused other people of not doing their jobs properly. And I think she does have a point here because we've known for decades about this concrete scandal. And warnings went out 25 years ago to suggest that people need to start looking at these schools and hospitals where this concrete was being used. And when a school even fell in, the roof caved in 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 2018, essentially the government sent out a few surveys and that was about it. So to say that this is specifically the fault of Rishi Sunak, Jillian Keegan, and those currently serving would be wrong. But As I point out in the piece, after 13 years of a Tory-led government, it's very difficult to point the blame elsewhere. Now, I think this narrative of broken Britain has become very familiar, and the go-to talking point now is that it's Tory cuts, Tory austerity. That's done the damage, and this week's cover piece takes a different angle on that. It says, actually, if you look at spending overall, it has skyrocketed. The issue is not a lack of money. It's how that money has been prioritized and, and how it's been spent. And what Tory politicians are guilty of is going for short-term giveaways and popular headlines rather than investing in long-term infrastructure. Giles, what do you make of Kate's argument there that the problem is not the amount of money, it's where it's ending up? And do you think that short-termism, as Kate puts it, in politics is most at fault here and the sort of willingness to to pass the buck well can i first say a really interesting article and, and it's one of those articles that forced me to um go around and look up some figures and be the geek wandering around whitehall with public sector net debt figures written all over pads so should we be putting austerity in quote marks is the way i would would phrase this and i would say it's not quite fair to and in particular the budgets that people are accusing of being behind some of this. I mean, the figures as I see it, when we 
the coalition came in, and I was a special advisor for the first four years there during, in particular, that first spending review, total departmental resource spending was about £310 billion. And when, at the dawn of the coronavirus epidemic, it was about £320 billion. So once you take into account 20% inflation between those two dates, that is a really large real terms cut for the sort of thing that a lot of people think of as public spending. And then we need to think about the £60 billion extra that the NHS took out of that and the rising international aid budget and other budgets that just have to rise with the size of the economy. The remaining budgets did indeed take a really, really large real terms cut. And, and that's pretty undeniable, and you can geek out as much as you like, but ultimately there's an awful lot of absolutely declining numbers before you even take into account the idea that inflation in the public sector, lamentably, you might say, but it's higher than normal inflation because it's linked to wages, because it's often public services, human services related, and it's much harder to become more productive at that stuff. You might well argue they could have done a better job at that. But I would say public services had had, have had austerity, but you do have, make a really good point in that article that the coalition government, which inherited a terribly large deficit and had to cope with it one way or another, had choices nevertheless about how it could have dealt with it. It didn't necessarily need to, for example, cut capital spending as hard as it did at the beginning. It didn't have to end up doing the first five years of it, pretty much 95% spending, 5% taxes ended up being the way the two went for. I mean, Ken Clark said when he did a has to, had to deal with his fiscal crisis in the 90s, he did it 50-50. That would have left more money for the sorts of things that Gillian Keegan's trying to pick up on now. We could have had a, a different trajectory towards it, and they could have been braver and taken on the pensioner lobby, maybe, and not had the triple lock. There's all sorts of things you could have done, although I would say you've got to apply the Juncker critique to all of them, which is, we all know what we wanted to do, we just didn't know how to get re-elected after doing it, and that would definitely apply to the health and public um, spending on pensions bit. Kate, you cite in your piece the recent Lord Ashcroft poll, which found that 58% of 2019 Tory voters agreed with the statement, Britain is broken, people are getting poorer, nothing seems to work properly. I mean, what does that mean for the Tories going into a possible election next year? Are people going to sort of think they've they've ruined everything well as some of the other polls suggest it's going to be really really difficult and it's obvious that things aren't working if you want to see your gp if you're one of the parents at 150 schools where your kids were told not to show up this week because the roof might cave in if you tried to take a plane over the past few weeks if you tried to get on a train that was delayed you're going to feel like things aren't working. I think Giles and I may be at risk of violently agreeing here. Austerity did happen. I think the piece tries to point out how disproportionate some of these cuts were and actually highlight that those sensitive areas like health, like pensions, which will only cost more money down the line, as we have seen over the past 13 years, as we will continue to see, those are the areas that the Tories decided to protect because they were just too politically tricky and they they didn't want voters to think that they were going to miss out in those areas. And so you got a 15% reduction in that capital investment budget in the first year that David Cameron comes in. And of course, that was Gordon Brown's plan too, because he had to prove to the markets that he was going to get his spending under control. And this is one of the tricky things in politics always, is that the incentive to do long-term investment isn't there because you're thinking about the next election cycle. The irony, as I point out in the piece, is that perhaps David Cameron, Theresa May, even Boris Johnson didn't think that they would be in power for as long as they have been. If you had taken a tenth of the HS2 budget, this 
grandiose project, which is going to be out of date by the time it even comes online, and put that towards more local infrastructure support, Rishi Sunak could be talking about those wins now. Instead, he's having to defend why schools are caving in, why the roads aren't good enough. And, you know, this is tricky for for every political group, but it gets harder the longer you've been in power and people just aren't seeing those updates. And Giles, what about the the Labour Party in, mm. in contrast? Do you see a party that if they come to government would be interested in uh, dealing with some of these failures of investment? I mean, this is where I'm going to become absolutely mega speculative. And this is also one of the most cautious opposition parties I think any of us have ever experienced. They seem to be very averse to setting out exactly what their plans are going to be, partly because their inheritance is so much worse than last time they came into power in 97. They realise they're going to face nothing but invidious choices. And I think the fiscal experts out there looking at the spending totals that have been announced for future think they aren't enough. So most people, you can read this, Stephen Bush in the Financial Times, for example, say there's going to be tax rises, just about how honest you can be about it. So where are Labour on this? I would say... In sentimental terms, they are very different from the Conservatives in one blindingly obvious way, in which the, I think the Labour Party believes in public goods and public services more than the Conservatives. I think the Conservatives will often look for opportunities to find ways to put things out to the private sector, and the Labour Party will be looking more towards failings in the public sector. So for any marginal decision, I would expect Labour to be more prone to trying to fix it public service-wise. Now. Whether that's the right call or not is a straight political one. I'll just make one anecdotal observation. If you ever visit a country that seems to be functional and working, I mean, my recent experience is the west of Canada, where British Columbia is a joyous place to have a nice summer holiday with wonderful mountains and so forth, natural endowments. But when you say, what's so much better about here than seems to be the case in the UK? It's not the lack of private sector things. It's not like they've got more shops or cafes or better cinemas. It's public goods. The roads are wider and cleaner. There are public toilets everywhere. There are. There seems to be just uh, more local control over these things. And it feels to me that the Labour government is going to be motivated to try to fix that, but it can't do it without more resources. Even if they felt secretly that they could increase borrowing or so forth, we already have a very loose fiscal situation. The loosest fiscal rules we've had for a very long time, we're only just meeting them. So I think they will want to fix it but they haven't explained how they can fund it yet, and that is going to be really, really difficult for them. OK, we're obviously looking back at 13 years of Tory rule, and obviously right in the middle of that period is Britain's decision to leave the EU. I mean, do you think that that is a factor in some of this? I think it's difficult to say in the sense that the impact of Brexit and the impact of COVID are near impossible to separate from each other now. But the reason that I think anything there is is most likely a secondary issue is that all of the issues we're talking about have been domestic issues since before the UK decided to vote to leave the European Union. I mean, the, 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 the largest argument against Brexit I think the, one of the best arguments against Brexit was actually the Liz Truss argument at the time, which is just this is going to distract us from everything we need to do at home for the coming years. I think she was proven quite right about that. But, you know, the decision to sort out your own finances, to properly balance capital investment with day-to-day spending, the decision to reform health care, to reform pensions, all of these things are possible in the EU as well as outside of them. So I think it would be wrong to praise or blame Brexit for what are fundamentally domestic decisions. Perhaps one of the best arguments in favor of Brexit Brexit, is that now politicians are forced to reckon with this. You can't blame anybody else. As Giles says, we have 
extremely loose fiscal rules under Jeremy Hunt, and they are barely managing to meet them. We also have record revenue coming into the Treasury. The tax burden is nearly at a post-war high. There is so much money that is going into the government's coffers, and people quite rightly are asking, what am I getting for that? And I think that is what the heart of the piece is about. It's it's about looking at what they've actually chosen to spend that money on, because there's so much money going around. And the truth is, they haven't made that long-term investment. And that's on Whitehall. That's on successive governments, Labour, Tory. But as I said at the start, it's very difficult at the moment for the Tories to blame anybody but themselves. They have had time and they haven't got their head around this. Just finally, Giles, since it is, as Kate puts it, now pretty hard for the Tories to blame anyone but themselves for this mess. Do you foresee a scenario in which the Tories are able to turn things around in time for next year's elections to scrape a narrow victory? Well, I'm comfortable saying that I'm the only person old enough here to be able to remember the major administration as a voter. And um, it feels to me very like that second major administration in a lot of ways. One of them being that people had a lot of respect for John Major and his intentions and his decency, and, but they thought the team around him was looking flaky and divisive. And even if the economy is improving, they didn't particularly want to give them the opportunity to enjoy the fruits of that. And it feels to me very major 1995 right now. There's a persistently, there isn't someone as charismatic as Blair across the other side of the dispatch box, but there really never has been. If you look at those numbers, they're just absurd and they'll never be repeated. But I feel it's become kind of structural, that lead. And so it's difficult to see the Conservatives getting a majority. And I think, I mean... I enjoy reading 19th century political biographies of people like Russell and Palmerston. And these people used to give up power when they felt they no longer had the confidence of the House or the people at large. They used to say, look, I can't really command it anymore. I want someone else to have a go. And I don't really understand the Conservatives wanting to hang on once after they've reached a certain point. There's so many of the optimistic sunshine vision they might have had in that brief moment between Johnson's election victory and COVID has gone away. The idea that we can solve all these problems with spending and have all these positive phrases like levelling up and science superpower and global Britain, that the wind has so gone out of their sails. If I was a Conservative minister waking up in 2024 going, oh, by the way, you've got a narrow majority, you're still in there, my heart would sink. I think they need time in, in opposition to have a good appraisal of everything that's happened. And maybe it's, it's not a bad time to hand it over. It's like 1974 for the Labour Party, you inherit this growing mess that you think well maybe in five years time we'll have another crack at it once we've had a good old think thank you kate and giles next in his column this week douglas murray writes about burning man the festival which has left silicon valley's finest stuck in the mud he joins me along with david willis who has been covering the festival for the bbc douglas could you start by explaining to listeners who might not be aware exactly what burning man is and why you had such feelings of schadenfreude about this year's festival. <laughs> well, of course, Burning Man, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is a sort of bigger version of uh, the UK's Glastonbury. Similar to Glastonbury, it's a sort of drug fueled music and cultural event in which people pay large sums of money to attend. And I simply pointed out that for everyone who has September back-to-work blues they can probably cheer themselves up by reflecting on the fact that at least this year they weren't at Burning Man. Yes, because um, it, it was it a was deluge of flooding, yes. wasn't it, David? Because you were there for the BBC. 
So could you tell listeners perhaps how you found the whole thing? Was it an utter misery or, or was there still, were there still people who were happy to be there despite the, the conditions? Uh, well, this was my sixth Burning Man. And um, I have to say, it was quite a challenge. I loved Douglas's article about the poop bucket. I personally <laughs> did not have a poop bucket. I've never owned such a thing. But uh, there were others who had uh, those things. And I have to, there's another such accoutrement to try to deal with that deluge of rain. And it started, we'd had a beautiful week. I mean, it had been absolutely perfect. And the desert is really beautiful, you know, but when it is nice and warm and, and a little chilly at night, but you know, it was absolutely beautiful to start with. And then Friday night into Saturday and throughout Saturday, it did not stop raining. And that sort of marooned everybody. I mean, at first, everybody was in pretty good spirits. There were people dancing in the mud and so on and so forth. But then we got a sort of sense of cabin fever, if you like, this thought that, my goodness, we could be stuck here for an awfully long time. And I think probably the, the, the rich folks, the oligarchs who fly in for this uh, event in increasing numbers, perhaps started to panic a bit. Yes. And uh, as Douglas, as you say in your piece, the thing about modern social media particularly is that there's, there's videos of all these sorts of events. So we can sort of, it, it, this sort of spectacle of it is something people can, can enjoy. That's right. I mean, at the um, 2017 uh, famous fire festival, F-Y-R-E, uh, it became, of course, a, a very, very successful Netflix documentary because of all of the people who had been promised a life-changing party of the millennium for only the rich and fabulous and then turned up to realise they'd been had and were living in refugee tents whilst trying to plot their exit. So there's an enormous appetite among the wider public for seeing people, they say, coughing up like this for what is meant to be a life-changing experience, only to discover that, as I say, the um, the great deluge of mud of reality comes tearing at them at a terrific rate. On the point about them being rich and fabulous, Douglas, do you think there's you could perhaps be accused of of gloating at uh, uh, of people who um who are, uh, you know, Burning Man has become such a sort of symbol of elitism in many ways, you know, a bit like Glastonbury. It started as quite a small thing, and now the people who go pay huge amounts of money. So is there an element to all this, Schadenfreude, which is um, the idea of seeing well-off people going through suffering? Uh, I don't think it's an element, Will. Uh, I think it's an omnipresent feeling. (laughs) Um, Who could... Who could possibly not enjoy such a sight? And as I say, uh, as with Glastonbury, there is this sort of political undertone to Burning Man, which has certainly emerged. I mean, every year at the Glastonbury Festival, of course, you see people on the main stage screaming about the necessity of a borderless world, all whilst everyone is in the most carefully protected bordered area in which highly uh, trained security guards patrol the perimeter fence to make sure that nobody comes in without paying top whack. It's 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 hard not to find, uh, for instance, also, again, Burning Man like Glastonbury, festivals where people talk about the importance of the planet and the ecosystem and always leave behind a terrific wasteland of tents and uh, and uh, detritus, including, of course, human detritus. And, uh, and this is very much one of the um, the elite pathologies of our time is is. 
do what we are, what we suggest, but not as we do. Because as you know, Will, any, for instance, ecologically interested um, uh, protest movement doesn't leave a scrap <laughs> of garbage behind. <laughs> David, I wonder um, uh, what you make of, of Douglas's uh, analysis there of a, the ideological side to, to some of these festivals such as Burning Man. I mean, you've, you've mentioned in your reporting that, that tickets can be very hard to get and sometimes to get into popular camps, you need to prove your commitment to its ideals. So I wondered if, if, if you agree with, with, with Douglas about the ideological element there. Well, well, I have to admit that I mean, this thing is ruinously expensive. I mean, the only thing they sell on site is ice and and uh, you know burning man costs i think most people a minimum of what the equivalent of about 650 pounds i mean more fool me i this is my sixth burning man and i bought my ticket two months before the main sale at what is known as the FOMO price uh, of uh, which is about $1,200. Now, the vehicle, uh, sorry, £1,200. Now, the vehicle pass costs $150. And because I'm too old and way too awkward to sleep in a tent, then one has to hire an RV. And, of course, there's a premium on such rentals during the week of the Burning Man Festival because they all come back irredeemably caked in dust. So uh, you're paying top dollar for the rental, the cleaning fee. Then you have to get to Reno, uh, assuming you're flying there. There's the cost of those flights. There's the food, the water, the beer. I could go on and on. The rent of a bicycle to get around. Loss of earnings for a week if you're a freelance like I am. And that's before you pay for any hallucinogenics. I mean, I could have... <laughs> I could have got myself, uh, you know, several weeks in the south of France in a luxury hotel for the cost of going to Burning Man. But it is fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And as I say, this is my sixth time. And there are so many things that I, I love about it. Poop buckets aside. <laughs> well, it's out of interest. May I ask, what's it like doing something like Burning Man not on drugs? <laughs> Who said I wasn't on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, to be honest, Douglas, I love the music. I, I'm way too old for that stuff, but I do love, I love dancing to techno, rave and house music. I love the rawness. I love the unforgiving nature of the surroundings, as I say, when it's sunny. Particularly it, unforgiving, particularly unforgiving this year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite. Yes. You know, the desert can be very beautiful. I love the weirdness. I mean, Burning Man still attracts uh, hippies and the ravers and the headness of all sorts and there is that uh, still the there is a bohemian quality to it I, I i like weirdos i'm one myself i think and there's art perhaps of questionable quality at times but uh, also workshops and seminars and should one wish to attend and there is still a lot of goodwill there it's just that this spirit, the spirit, you know, that, that that was part of the setup back in nineteen what in eighteen eighty six, has been somewhat trampled by those flying in on corporate jets with uh, their, uh, you know, their assistants and their stylists in attendance, and uh, also a huge sense of entitlement. Well, David, a final question to you, I suppose: w Would you go back next year, even after the disaster of this year? 
I, well, I have to say, sucker for punishment that I am, that I probably would. <laughs> yes, I was in the company of a friend and a colleague, uh, Keith Taman. He's a BBC cameraman. He's been all over the world and um, he's covered lots of rather unpleasant things. And um, he's also covered some you know, very memorable and joyous occasions. And he said at the end of the week, in which we were together in an RV going through all this, he said, wow. That was quite an adventure. And I thought to myself, if this man who's seen practically everything thinks that that was quite an adventure, then I should probably pat myself on the back and think, well, we did quite well, really, didn't we? Let's go back next year. May I ask a quick question of David before we wrap up, Will? Yes, of course. Please. Why do you think, David, that the BBC needs to send so many people to Burning Man as it does to Glastonbury every year? Well, I think the problem is the BBC didn't send anybody to Burning Man because I went purely of my own volition and ended up working there. But um, there was a terrible scramble for my services, meagre as they are, from various other outlets who also found that they hadn't officially got anybody present there. So I, I wouldn't, it would be a mistake to say the BBC, I don't think the BBC sent anybody actually to Burning Man. Oh, Glastonbury, of course, they send hundreds. Do they? I, I, I'm not aware. I, to be honest with you, I'm not aware of that. But you may, I'm sure you're right. They cover very few cultural events, but they do like to cover Glastonbury. <laughs> but, but, but they broadcast, to be fair, they broadcast part of Glastonbury, do they not? Yes, I think that's the excuse. That's right. <laughs> fair enough. Thank you, Douglas and David. And finally, travel writer Sean Thomas argues in The Spectator that having a pet is far worse for the planet than flying, and he warns that pet owners should watch their carbon paw print. He joins me now, along with Rachel Spencer, freelance writer and pet blogger. Sean, in your piece, you say that in recent years, you've been made to feel guilty about being a travel writer because of the environmental impact of flying. But you say that now you have a response to your critics. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? <laughs> I've been slightly troubled. But, um, but anyway, yes, I have been tr troubled. And there was this guy uh, called Patrick Hansen, who runs a Luxembourg-based private jet company, leasing, I think, called uh, Lux Aviation. And he has, uh, he's pointed out quite controversially that if you, do, if you judge it in a certain metric, somebody who uh, leases a private jet uses about... It emits about the same CO2 as somebody who owns three medium-sized dogs on an annual basis, which is quite an extraordinary statistic. Like, three middle-sized dogs are as bad as taking a private jet. So for someone like me who doesn't even take private jets, I take, you know, standard jets, then that's quite reassuring. I'm not so bad after all. Whereas people who own pets, you know, they should really be examining themselves. <laughs> and, um, Rachel, I wonder, I wonder what you make of Sean's argument. Are pets, are cats and dogs really doing so much damage to the planet? I think it's really interesting to kind of dig into the stats of this argument and to, and also to bear in mind, like how many people fly around on private jets and how many people have cats and dogs. And I think for the, I think there's a, there's lots of different things that we need to consider here, but I think the main thing is to think about like, what do private jets bring to our lives? And what do cats and dogs bring to our lives? And over here in the UK, we've got like more than half of the population who own a cat or a dog. And if we were take, to take that away, what, where are we left? Um, so that is my thoughts on it. There are a lot, there are far few people who fly around on private jets, very, you know, very fortunate people. 
Whereas cats and dogs, yes, they may have a carbon pore print, however you want to look at it, but that comes with a lot of benefits as well. So they are my thoughts on it. What are, so what, what, are, what, sorry, what are the benefits then? I mean, I know that some people need working animals. Some people are, you know, exceptionally lonely, you know, and a dog or a cat can be a great solace. But a lot of people own pets just because they kind of want to. You know, it seems a little bit selfish. So I think what we've, what we've found over like the last few years, particularly since the pandemic, is that pets play a really important role in our mental health. So particularly over the last few years when we've all been very lonely, you know, you'll have seen, you'll have read about the huge explosion in people adopting animals from rescue centres and also, you know, unfortunately, puppy breeding, cat breeding, um, which, you know, some of it is questionable. But yes, it's lovely to have a pet, but they do have a lot of really important purposes as well. So when we were talking ahead of recording, we were talking about the war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we have pets who are going, we have dogs who are out there at war, you know, doing incredible things to support our troops. We've got service dogs, we've got guide dogs, we've got hearing dogs, we've got medical detection dogs who are out there sniffing out Parkinson's and cancer, COVID, when COVID first came out. We've got, we've got animals doing some really incredible work. So yes, for a lot of people, a pet is a companion and loneliness is also a really big topic as well. We are becoming less and less connected as a society and pets are real connectors. We've also got charities out there who are connecting animals via pets as therapy to people who are in hospices, in hospitals, in care homes, who are very, very lonely and who need that company and need that just that kind of unconditional love that you get from a pet. Now, I know I'm sounding really fluffy here and I'm saying that because I'm really conscious of that. Um, but they do bring so much joy to our lives, but they do also serve important purposes as well. You know, they are going out there. They are saving lives. Um, Organisations like Medical Detection Dogs are really, really making a difference. And when we've got our service dogs who are out in war zones and, and working with the police. But most, most, most animals aren't that, though. Most animals are not service dogs or guide dogs or anything like that. And I know plenty of people, loads of people who have very active lives. They've got families, social lives, kids, and they have pets. They have no need for a pet, really. And that pet is causing a lot of destruction. Like cats, cats, let's focus on cats for a second. I mean, the, the destruction wrought by cats is shocking. Tens of millions of animals, wild animals, are killed every year. But I mean, when I read the stats and dug into this, I was absolutely astonished. Uh, the, the, the hundreds of millions of animals are killed every year by domestic cats who don't do anything. You know, they don't, they don't, they're not, they aren't guide cats. They're only you know, military cats. So they, that is a monumental, selfish thing to own a cat when you don't really need one when they're doing all this destruction. But Sean, um, don't, don't you see how perhaps arguments like saying we don't need uh, cats and dogs? I mean, that's going to upset an awful lot of people for whom, as, as Rachel said, it, they, 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 bring joy, they bring joy to people's lives, whether or not they need them on, you know, in the same way you might need food and water, uh, obviously, obviously not in most cases, but, but, but they do bring a lot of joy to people's lives, perhaps in the same way that travel, although it is your job, it also brings you a lot of, a lot of joy as well. Yes, yeah, no, no, I totally, and that was really the parallel I was trying to make, is that... Yeah, for me, when I was locked down in uh, winter 21, you know, and I couldn't travel, I got very depressed and because I just love travel. It's, it's necessary for me. I don't know why, but I just do. And so for me, it, it, though I have to admit, it's not, you know, I'm not going to die without it, but I love it. So I can see, but my point is that there is, other people would say, well, yeah, but you're just flying around the world doing all these terrible things. Well, yeah, I say, yeah, but you own a cat, which is doing terrible things. So we are all hypocrites in our own way, is kind of my point. Rachel, I wonder what you make of, of that argument, I suppose, if... Um... Uh, when it comes to the questions of environmentalism, then, is Sean right that perhaps all of us are in some ways quite hypocritical about what we choose to say is causing more or less damage to, to the planet? 
Yeah, I I actually do agree with Sean. When I read the article um, preparing for this chat, I did agree with him because I think at the end of the day, it's a bit live and let live, isn't it? It is live and let live. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I'm not. I wouldn't bash you for flying around the world and being a travel journalist, and I hope that you wouldn't bash me for being a crazy dog lady. It is a bit of live and let live, and I also feel like. Okay, we we don't want to damage the planet. We want to look after the world that we're in. And there are steps that all of us can take, whether it's Sean as a travel writer or me as a dog owner, to be more sustainable, to be kinder to the planet. Like from my point of view, I like sorry to go into this, but you know, I use like <laughs> compostable poo bags when I clean up after okay. my dog. They break down within three to six months, so they don't, you know, haven't got the plastic there. The toys that I have for him, you know, they're all made from recyclable materials and all of that, all that kind of thing. I really do try to be a more environmentally friendly pet owner as much as I can. I, and I'm, I, I'm the same. I am now uh, refusing to go on private jets. So, um... <laughs> no, really, I'm on strike. Any more private jet? No, sorry, not doing it. Going to save the planet instead. So, yeah. Uh, and, Sean, I, are you... Um... Are you actively, just a final question, and this this maybe is a personal note, but are you, on a personal level, do you like pets? Do you like cats and dogs? Or do you actually dis, do you dislike them? <laughs> this is going to make me so unpopular. But um, no, my family had cats. Uh, my, you know, uh, I've had dogs, but I find them slightly boring. I've got to be honest. So, I mean, again, I know this is going to be the most unpopular thing I ever said. But, and I, and I, no, I don't begrudge people pets. They do bring happiness. But I just think people should think a little bit more about when they hurl accusations about, you know, about how they live their life. And that they might be doing something that somebody else would find a little bit, you know, questionable. Thank you, Sean and Rachel. And that's everything this week. As ever, please do pick up a copy of the magazine where you can read all the articles we've talked about and obviously plenty more. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week.